Your um, clapping is not in tempo. Huh? <laughs> so we are trying to pause. No, as in you're not clapping together. Really? <laughs> 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 Pastor, Pastor Isaac. So without further ado, I'd like to hand over the time to him. Uh, good morning. Uh, it's always a joy to be able to worship together. I usually hardly have an opportunity to worship. Always halfway through, then I come down, right? So today, actually, I got the whole experience. Uh, it's always wonderful to be together, uh, to serve and worship the Lord. Uh, our series, through the book of Galatians, is titled, The Gospel-Centered Life, The Just Shall Live by Faith. Okay, and so we begin by, what is the gospel? Gospel is a revelation of God. We don't get to change it. God revealed it to us and essentially Paul summarized in a very simplified form is Jesus coming to rescue us from this evil age. Secondly, we saw that it's a revelation of God's grace. Saved by grace, but we continue to live by grace. So while we have doubts, we may wrestle, we may stumble, but the grace of God is sufficient. And then it requires a faith response. We respond by faith. Faith means living by insight and not by sight. If we live by sight, then we are caught up by all the issues that we face. But when we live by insight, we see beyond those issues. And so we experience this freedom in Christ. How? It says, through our identity, that's chapter 4, through the Holy Spirit, that's chapter 5, and through our community in Christ, just chapter 6. And so last week, we looked at the beginning of chapter 4. The results of the gospel is sonship, that we become children of God. That's our identity. Our value is not in our roles or what we do, our abilities, but our identity. And today we continue in that strain where we talk about the gospel and the law. It really boils down to who we are. Okay, so today we'll look at Galatians 4, 12 to 31. Let's spend some time before the Lord. Let me read the word of God. So let's uh, bow our heads and keep a moment of silence. Galatians 4 verse 12. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time, and that which was a trial to you and my bodily condition you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is the sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth now? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. My children, 
with whom I again in labour until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Moses had two sons, one of, by the born woman and one by the free woman. But the son of the born woman was born according to the flesh, and the son of the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labour. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than the children of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and the son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free woman. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, may you use the word of God to speak to us, that once again we'll see Christ lifted up, and they are truly, as your children, free, free in Christ. In our lives, we will truly learn to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, St. Augustine is probably the greatest theologian the church has ever produced. He lived in the 4th and 5th century in North Africa. His life story came down to us in a series of confessions he wrote before God. He was the one who came out with this idea of uh, original sin which means the original sin of Adam has affected all of humanity and hence today, all of us, we have this sin nature. A thousand years after Augustine, the doctrine became the basis of the reform idea of total depravity, which means we are all depraved. Not that we are depraved to do bad things or evil things, but we are depraved to the extent that we cannot choose to turn to God. God must first initiate the work in us for us to turn to Him. Augustine defines sin as disordered loves. We love, love wrong things or the right things wrongly. And in his confessions, we see him wrestling with the sinfulness and the brokenness of humanity. In fact, when he died, the day he died, he asked everybody to leave the room so that he can be alone with God Himself. And you know what he was doing? He was reading the Psalms of Repentance, weeping over his sins. And this is years and years after he served as a theologian, a pastor. Someone like Augustine, who is so obsessed with sin, you imagine that his life would be riddled with guilt, sorrow, self-loathing. This sense of being restricted. But the reality is the opposite. You know, his life, can be summarized uh, with these few Latin words. They says, Delegate at quad with fuck. 
which means, okay, I hope I didn't butcher the Latin, but which means it says, love and do what you will. If you are motivated by love, you can do whatever you want. Of course, the largest context of Augustinian love is the love of God. He's saying that if our hearts are aligned with God's love, you know, whatever we do, we will please Him. Such is the freedom Augustine experienced in God. The question is how? How is someone who is so obsessed with guilt or sin, depravity, live such a free life? And that's the question I would like us to think about today. When we first came to Christ, we've experienced that freedom. The burden lifted up, the sense of guilt taken away. We feel this joy and zeal. But over time, we lose the sense of joy and zeal. Maybe because we go through hard times and we think, why did God allow me to go through this? Maybe it's just we get caught up with the mundaneness of life. You know, life goes on, right? You find a job, get married, maybe have children, worry about your children, try to upgrade, try to advance in your career. What is life about? And if we lose sight of this big picture, we begin to wonder, what am I doing here? And we lose the sense of destiny as children of God. We forget that we're actually heading towards a, a certain eternal destination. We just live our lives day by day. We lose this sense of zeal. We become lukewarm. Then maybe what we do, you know, reading the Bible, praying, coming for worship, going for your, your, your DGs, becomes a routine, becomes a sense of duty rather than joy. It's not something that brings you closer to God, but you just go through the motions. So how do we experience this freedom in Christ? That is like what we would like to consider today from Galatians 4, 12 to 31. Galatians 4, 12 to 31, we'll first ask, what is my purpose? Secondly, who am I? What is our purpose and then what is our identity? Now you notice, it's the same question we asked last week because this entire section, chapter 326 to 431, is one pericope or one segment. Last week we asked, who are you? And the answer is, I'm a child of God. This week, when Paul summarizes the point, he asks, which child are you? Yes, you are a child of God, but which child? The one who is free or the one who is enslaved? So let's look at our purpose, which is Christoformity, the formation of Christ. Essentially, it means growing in Christ's likeness. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. Paul is saying, as a Jew, I've now become living like a Gentile. I've come to faith. You know, I've moved away from relying on the law. So become like me. Don't go back to the law. Remember what the issue is in Galatia? The Christians there, they became Christians, and then the Jewish people came down to Galatia and says that, you know, believing in Christ is not enough. You have to add on to this. You have to do that. And so, the people that began to turn and believe that, yeah, believing in Christ is not enough. So Paul comes along and says, remember the gospel. Anyone that preaches a different gospel, that is a false gospel. Remember you're living by grace and faith. Remember your identity. You're free. You're a child of God. You're free. You're not enslaved. And so it says, remember the first time I, I preached with you, I was 
not very, you know, I had this illness, but yet you believe. That which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe. You could have looked at me and said, you know, you're so sick, why should I believe? But you did not. Instead, you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Himself. Then it says, where then is the sense of blessing now? Now that I tell you that, you know, it's just by, saved by faith, not works, why do you not accept it? Why do you treat me like an enemy? I remember at that time, if possible, you have plucked out your eyes from me. That was the extent they loved Paul and had this joy and zeal in Christ. But what happened? So have I become an enemy to you by telling the truth? The false teachers eagerly seek you, but it's not for a good reason. They want to shut you out. They want to alienate you so that you only seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a good manner. Not only when I'm present with you. It is good always to, know, to pursue after Christ, not only when I'm with you, even when I'm away. And so what is the problem? The Galatians, they lost their sense of zeal and joy. Why? Why did they turn away from just believing in Christ and accept what the Jewish people say? Oh, you must keep your Sabbath, you must circumcise. You're not doing enough. Well, because even after they believe Jesus, you know, after the initial experience of freedom and joy, they continue to experience challenges in life. Life was not easy. And they begin to feel like there's something that I can control. You know, oh, I'm not loving God enough, you know, because maybe I didn't keep myself up. Maybe I'm not circumcised. So if I can do all these things, then I can please God. Then maybe my life will be better. God, believing in God was simply not enough. How about us today? Is believing in God enough? Is Christ enough for us? On the midst of challenges that we face, we say, why? Or maybe I, I don't have enough faith. Maybe I didn't give enough. Maybe I didn't do enough. That appeals to our, the propensity of our human heart to worship something other than God. We turn away from God to other things. Today is the same. It's just that maybe the, the gods we worship have different names. We go after accomplishments, accolades, autonomy. I want to be a master of my faith, I, not according to what God wills, but my will. Addictions, to make myself feel better. Different things that we pursue that turns us away from God. We lose the big picture. You know, why did God save me and leave me here and then go through all these challenges? And so Paul reminds them. He says he has lost the zeal See, my children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, I could wish to be present with you now to change my tone because I'm perplexed. I'm puzzled why you turn away from Christ. You turn away from freedom back to the law. And again, I have to labor until Christ is formed in you. The idea is giving birth. Paul shared the gospel with them, gave birth to them and they became Christians and now he says, I'm laboring again. I'm again in labor until what? Until Christ is formed in you. You know, this is the purpose of Paul's life. To form Christ in others, in himself and in others. To pursue Christ-likeness and to help others become like Christ. And not, it's not only just Paul doing this. This is what God is doing. Romans 8, we are familiar with this text. It says, we know God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to His purpose. 
What does it mean by God causing all things to work for good? So that we get what we desire, that our lives will be smooth. No, he says, for those he foreknew, he has predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, to become Christ-like. And he continues the series of um, what God has done and finally ends that to these whom he justified, he will glorify. That's why we say the end point of discipleship of following Jesus is to become Christ-like. That is the big picture. The things that are happening, we are going through in our lives, if we just live by sight, we will say, oh, difficult challenges, marriage challenges, children. But the bigger picture, when we live by insight, is to form Christ. And so we ask, you know, in my parenting, how am I forming Christ in my children? And how is God using it to make me Christ-like? In my work, how am I causing others to grow in, to be like Christ or to know Christ? How is it forming me to be like Christ or not? And then you get the big picture, you realise that we are not just going through life, you know, it's like every day is the same thing. There is a purpose. God is working towards a certain end. And we can only know how all these things are working for the good, for us to grow in Christ's likeness at the end of time. That's why we need faith. Faith is believing in advance what can only make sense in the reverse. Why do we need faith? Because if by faith we believe this will make sense, but we don't understand. We can only look back, then we understand. And so some of the challenges you go through in your parenting, in your marriage, in your work, as a student, you wonder why do I have to do all this thing? Why do I have to go to school every day? Well, God says He's working all things for the good. By faith we believe He's causing us to grow in Christ's likeness and we choose to grow in Christ's likeness. And so the question we have to ask ourselves, if this is our purpose in life, that throughout redemption, God unveils His redemptive plan through Christ, is to form Christ, cause us to be Christ-like. He didn't save us and just take us back to heaven, but left us on earth so that we can grow in Christ-likeness. How is it happening in my life? How are all these things I am going through helping me to grow in Christ-likeness and helping me cause others to form Christ? That's our identity. And then Paul summarizes this whole point. He says, be imitators of me as I am also imitators of Christ. Be like me because I'm growing like Christ. And C.S. Lewis, he says, the whole of Christianity, there's nothing else. In the same way, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christ, which is what the word Christians mean, little Christ. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. And friends, if that's the purpose of God, how are we growing in Christ-likeness and causing those around us to grow in Christ-likeness? And so then Paul moves on to summarize his point of identity. He talks about two sons and two covenants. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you listen to the law? He's talking to the Galatian, Christians in Galatians. Now, he turns his attention to the Jews who brought in um, the teaching that believing in Christ alone is not enough. You see, you Jewish people, you are under the law, but do you really understand the law? What did it say? It says, it is written that Abraham has two sons, 
one of the born women and one of the free. Remember, God promised Abraham that he will have a promised son with Sarah, his wife. But Abraham waited for years. From 75 to 99, he still didn't have a, a child. He thought maybe God forgot. Maybe the child will come through his servant. But God says no. Then one day, Sarah says, why don't you just sleep with my mate, you know, Hagar? Because I'm old already. Maybe God forgot. And so Abraham jumped on it, right? He didn't say no. He said, right. Because perhaps he's also waiting impatiently. Believing God was not good enough. So he slept with Hagar and then they had a, child, a son named Ishmael. So here, one by the born woman, by Hagar, Ishmael. And then later, Sarah got pregnant with Isaac. So the two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. But the son by the born woman was born according to the flesh. The son by the free woman comes through promise. He took Hagar according to his own will by his flesh. It's not the one that God promised. God promised was the one through Sarah, Isaac. And then Paul switches. He says, this is just an allegory. These women are two covenants. He says, what? Talk about Ishmael and Isaac became two covenants. One coming from Mount Sinai bearing children who are slaves. She is Hagar. And now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia that corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. What happened in Mount Sinai? God gave the law, right? So the two covenants that they're referring to is the old covenant and the new. So Paul is saying, well, you know, this old covenant, which is really the Jews now, they are born of the flesh. They are correspond to the present Jerusalem, Judaism at the time. And they are born in slavery. But the Jer Jerusalem from above is free. We, we are not from that. We are free. He's saying that we have come out from uh, Judaism, and now you believe in Christ and you are free. Now you, brethren, he says the Galatian Christians, you are like Isaac, you are children of promise, not of the flesh. But as at that time, he, Ishmael, born according to the flesh, persecuted Isaac, was born according to the Spirit. So this is what is happening now. Remember Ishmael was old, duh, and he told his younger brother Isaac, he mocked him. He says, you know, I'm the older brother. I will get the inheritance. He was persecuting the younger one. And so Paul is saying, this is what is happening. The Jews who came from Jerusalem say, believing in Christ is not enough. What you're doing is not enough. They are persecuting you. So what should you do? What happened to Ishmael? He was cast out, right? So he continues, what does Scripture say? Cast out the born woman and the son, for the son of the born woman shall not be an heir to the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the born woman, but of the free woman. Sarah came up to her husband, Abraham, and says, cast out Ishmael and Hagar. You know, because the promise comes through Isaac, Ishmael is not going to share in it. And Abraham did it. So Paul is saying you should do the same thing. He's telling the Galatian Christians, you need to do the same thing. Cast out the false teachers because you are free. And so the, here it shows us two sons. One that's free, one that's enslaved, and he's asking them, which one are you? Earlier, he says, you are, who are you? You are a child of God. Well, which child are you? Are you the one that's enslaved, or are you the one that's free? Friends, how do we become a child of God? Whether you're enslaved or free, how do you become a child of God? It's through the Son that God promised. 
the Son in whom God is well pleased, Jesus Christ. Beginning of the year, we talked about the greatest love story ever told from creation to Christ. That all the significant events as history unfolded was pointing to this Saviour. Jesus is the fulfilment of God's redemptive plan. And when Jesus was baptized here in Mark 1, he came out and God says, My son, whom I love you, whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. What does this mean? You know, the Jewish people, when they read scripture, it's like stringing pearls together. One pearl, two pearls, you string them together. Then you can understand the full meaning. So it's a quotation from different parts of the Old Testament so that we have a fuller meaning of what, what God is saying. So when God says, you are my son whom I love with you, I'm well pleased, what, what is he really saying? First, my son is a quotation from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. It's a promise that Messiah will come and he will become king. He will be the king of Israel. So when God says, my son, to a Jewish person, it reminds them of Psalm 2. My son, Jesus, is the king. I'm well pleased from Isaiah 42. From Isaiah 41 to 56, it talks about the suffering servant. This, this Messiah-like figure who suffers. He'll, but he'll bring justice to the nations. You know, the Jews today are still waiting for a Messiah because to them, Messiah will come like King David to rule over them, to rule over the world. But every time, they come to the book of Isaiah, especially from 41 to 56, they are stunned. Because right here it's talking about a Messiah-like figure who suffers. Who is this person? Why, why should he suffer? And so today they're still waiting for a triumphant Messiah. So when God says, quoted this, this phrase, say, I'm well pleased with you, he's referring to Jesus, who is the one who come to suffer for us. He is the suffering servant. And finally, in whom I'm well pleased. It's from Genesis 22. The story of the sacrifice of Isaac. This story is a well-established uh, pattern that Isaac was representing Christ. For three days, they walked to Mount Moriah. For three days to Abraham, his son was dead. But on the third day, he got back his son. Just like on the third day, Jesus resurrected. Isaac was in a teenager. He had to carry the wood to burn himself, Remember? You know how much wood it takes to burn a person? It's not one twig, you know. There's a whole bunch of wood carrying the wood up to Mount Moriah to be burned. It shows the image of Christ carrying the cross. And so this idea, when we look at this phrase, really points to Jesus as king, as servant, and as the son. How did a king become a servant? Well, because he's going to be the son who would be sacrificed. Not only that, it's an interesting point here. You know, the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, from our point of view, is divided into three segments. Basically, the Ketuvim, the writings, the Navaim, which is the prophets, and the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. This is how they divide the Bible, okay? And so the Old Testament Bible, the Hebrew Bible, is called the Tanakh, which, because they take the first two words of each segment. Torah is Ta, Navaim, Na, and Ketuvim, Ka. So Tanakh. So what I'm saying is, when God says this word, you're my son in whom I'm well pleased, um, it, he is taking this, rep, this, this verse from different parts of the Hebrew Bible, representing the whole of it, which is the whole of the Hebrew Bible is fulfilled in this Messiah, in Jesus Christ. So how do we become a child of God? 
Friends, it's not by our own efforts, not because we choose and believe in Jesus so we can get it. It's God who stirs in us and it's Jesus who paid the price for us. He is the ultimate fulfillment of God. He is the climax of God's redemptive plan. And through putting our faith in Him, we become a child of God. So Paul is telling them, the Galatians, right, that this is how you become children of God. To the Jewish people, he says, you are still seeking. You know the law. The law says the promise comes through Isaac. And so, when we understand that now we are a child of God, the question is, which child are you? Are you the one who is free or are you the one who is enslaved? How do you see this world? Some of us think that the world is sinful and therefore we need to keep apart from it, which is quite true. Others, we just think, you know, uh, enjoy the world and what, what, what it provides to the extent we turn away from God. But Paul or the Gospel tells us there's a third way. To understand that this is my father's world, while it is broken, it's sinful, it is still my father's world, and we are here, he gives all these gifts for us to enjoy. And that is why in my pastor's voice, I shared about Augustine. He says, the whole life of a good Christian is holy desire. The world is a smiling place. God is lagito, which is the lavisher of gifts. We think about God as father. Do you think of him as a lavisher of gifts? That he's pleased with you. Or is this world a frowning place? A terrible place? God is against me. It's like, every time my life is smooth, I'm worried because, you know, wow, maybe you, you take something away, you know, to make me suffer, to teach me a lesson. Friends, God is not a party pooper. He's not just waiting for you to stumble you and see how you grow, you know. He's a good father. But Augustine said, before his conversion, his back was against the light. He was just looking at the things, all the good things, and he enjoyed life. It was only after his conversion he turned back to the source of light that he was not looking at the things, but at, at the light. So have we just looked at the gifts God has given us, enjoyed them, but we have forgotten the giver? Or we just look at God and then we just don't dare to enjoy all the gifts? Well, the gospel says there's a third way, right? This is my father's world. He gives us gifts to enjoy. Our children, our work, money. But we do not lose sight of the giver of all these gifts. Augustine said, the gifts is like a fiancé giving uh, his bride-to-be a ring, right? A ring where the, where the wife say, oh, just the ring is enough, I don't need the bridegroom. No, of course not. We want to see the bridegroom because the ring is a pledge of his love. So how do we see this world? Is this world a smiling place? Is it a place where God has put us to enjoy despite the brokenness? Philip Yancey shared, you know, he says, growing up, he grew up in a very legalistic environment. And so to him, the spiritual world and the natural world, they, they are divided. But as he grew in faith, he said, I learned to pray following Augustine, not that my desires be quenched or taken away, rather that my scattered longings be gathered together in the source who alone can order them. Remember Augustine said, sin is disordered loves. We love the wrong things or we love the right things the wrong way. Only when we turn to the source of light can we reorder our loves. Can we take our scattered longings for all these things 
and put them together, put them properly to, that we love God first. And hence, when we just experience or pursue the, the gifts, the good things in this world, you know, it will, we can enjoy it, but it will still not fulfill us. There's something missing. You still feel like, what is it? And hence, all these good gifts, they are pointers to the supernatural. When we do not know God, we just want to enjoy this world, you find that you're not fully satisfied. Why? Because this longing is causing you to seek beyond the physical world to the spiritual world, to God, to our Creator. That our scattered longings can be gathered together. As Christians, when we are just obsessed with the world, with things that God has blessed us, maybe not obsessed, but you know, it is in our face all the time. We lose sight of the giver of gifts. So from Galatians 4, Paul talks about our purpose, to remember that there is one purpose, to grow in Christ-likeness and cause others to grow together, to be like Christ. And our identity, you are a child of God, but which are you? Are you the one who is enslaved or are you the one that is free? When we talk about these two sons, it reminds me of the parable of the prodigal son, remember? This son came to the father, says, I want to leave you, I'm rebellious, give me my share of my inheritance. The dad agreed. He took his share, went away, spent it all on prostitutes, became a beggar, and then suddenly he's awakened. He says, I'm going to go home. Came home, his father accepted him, right? Threw a party for him. But then, there's the older brother. At the end of the, of the parable, talks about the older son who is in the field. He came home and there was music. So he asked his servants, what's happening? Why is there a party at home? The servant said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. Now, older brother became angry, was not willing to go in. His father had to come out and plead with him. Why was he angry? Because, you know, the younger brother has already taken his share, right? So whatever is left behind is, is his. The calf that slaughtered is his. He's not very happy. He's taking my stuff. And he answered, he said, Father, look, for so many years I've been serving you. I've never neglected a command of yours, an order of yours. And yet, you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate. I also want to celebrate. But you never give anything to me. You see, living with his father became a, a chore. He's following his command. He's serving him. He, he is not enjoying this privilege. But this son of yours, not my brother, but this son of yours who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the calf for him. You know, sometimes you argue, spouses argue, right? Then you over your children, but you don't like them. You say, you see, you see your son is not my son anymore, right? It's the same, your, your son is not my brother. You, you did this all for him. And then the father says, son, you've always been with me and all that is mine is yours. This older brother was with the father, but he never enjoyed the relationship. To him, it was duty. He had, God with him, but did, they, did he enjoy this relationship? Because why did Jesus tell this parable? Because at the beginning of Luke, all the tax collectors or sinners were with Jesus and the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, the scribes were grumbling. Jesus received sinners and he is with them. Why? And then Jesus started telling three parables, right? There's something lost and something found. Hundred sheep, one lost, he was found. Ten coins, one lost, he was found. Two sons, one lost, he was found. And the story finishes. It's wonderful. It's perfect. But then, 
right at the end, he talks about the elder son, the one who's not supposed to be lost, is also lost. Who is this elder son? The Pharisees and the scribes. They had a problem of the elder son. They had the laws of God, the festivals, their worship of God, but they never enjoyed the relationship with God, the sense of intimacy, the sense of freedom. And that is the problem of the Christians of Galatia. Paul is asking them, do you have the problem of the elder son? And we have to ask ourselves this question, you know. Do we have the problem of the elder son? How do you know if the problem? Well, when we see good things happening to other people, we think it's unfair. Hey, the person never come for prayer meeting, you know, but why the life so good? Why am I so difficult? We are not happy. When someone comes to faith, you know, ask your invite friends, they say, I don't I invite this friend, but not this friend. Why? Because I cannot imagine if this friend becomes Christian, well, every Sunday I must see them. We decide who is deserving of salvation, who is not. We live not in freedom, but you know, our spiritual lives, worship, DG becomes a, a duty, a chore. We have the Father, but we don't enjoy the relationship with Him. Do we have the problem of the elder son? And this whole parable really is talking about the Father's heart, right? The three parables, what is lost, what is found, is about God. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, God is seeking the lost. And so, Henry Nouwen, in Reflection of the Prodigal Son, he says, as Father, He wants His children to be free, free to love. Their freedom includes the possibility of their living home, going to a distant country and losing everything, right? Referring to their younger son. He's saying the father wants to stop the son, but because he loves them, love entails freedom, he lets him go. The father's heart knows all the pain that will come from the choice, but his love makes him powerless to prevent it. As father, he desires that those who stay at home enjoy his presence and experience his affection. Who? The elder son. But again, he wants only to offer a love that can be freely received. He suffers beyond telling when his children honour him only with lip service while their hearts are far away from him. Even the elder son is home, but his heart is far away. You see, he says true love must be love that is freely received. The father desires to stop his children from turning away, but because he loves, he lets them. Can you imagine this kind of love? As parents... We certainly know we want to stop. We see something happening. Or we can foresee something happening. We try to prevent our children from going through. But here it says free love is freely received. He knows there's deceitful tongues and disloyal hearts, but he cannot make them love him without losing his true fatherhood. Do we understand the heart of the father? And so we ask the question, who are you? You say, I'm a child of God. Well, which child are you? Are you the one that's free or the one who's enslaved? How do we experience this freedom? I think it goes back to, I mean, Galatians tells us, right, your identity, the Holy Spirit, community. It goes back to our walk with the Lord. The whole of last year, remember that phrase I used? Maybe you don't remember, but long obedience in the same direction, right? It's always coming back to our walk with God. It's, in the, it's obeying Him and following Him. It's the journey of a lifetime. But this journey, firstly, is through, I think, our spiritual disciplines of what we call means of grace. We say it's the Holy Spirit that helps us experience intimacy with God. But the Holy Spirit uses means. Means of grace is like worship, prayer, scripture reading. 
Every time we gather in our DGs, we come from worship. It's a means of grace, a means to experience the grace of God. That the Holy Spirit moves, speaks to us, warms our hearts, turns us to Him, renews our heart again. Silence and solitude. Because many times in the hustle and bustle or busyness of life, we become desensitized towards God. But when we slow down, we become still, um, we keep silence before Him. We allow God, we enjoy the relationship with Him. We are not just busy doing His work, but we enjoy this relationship with the Father. For Him to heal us in the deepest parts of our hearts that nothing else can touch. Through spiritual disciplines, but not just by ourselves, but in community. That's why chapter 5 says the Holy Spirit will work, but also the community of faith. When we gather every week as a DG, of course here we worship God, right? But we encourage you to get involved in smaller groups. In our DGs, we meet at homes. We share lives. What is the purpose? Well, the purpose is not just only to talk about our lives, of course, but to remind ourselves we are people called to be children of God. We gather together to encourage one another to pursue this journey of long obedience in the same direction. We are committed to following Christ. We know we are not just uh, going through this life, we have an eternal destiny. So every time we gather in a DG, that's what we are doing. We're presenting ourselves before God. We're reminding each other that, hey, you know, I'm, I'm different from people who don't know God because there's a purpose. Christoformity, form Christ, help each other become Christ-like because there's a destiny, etern- eternity, not just this earth. We can continue to follow Christ to be, remember that we are children of God. But which child are you? The one who is free or the one who is enslaved? And we do this because of what Christ has done. The love of Christ compels us that we no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who lives for us. Friends, do you experience this freedom in Christ? You know, Ernest Gordon was 24 years old. He was an officer in the British Army during World War II. He was captured and brought to Burma to build a railway by River Kwai. Okay, it's known as the Death Railway because um, 80,000 men died building that railway. They lived in harsh conditions. 40 degrees heat, they worked bare-bodied except for a loincloth. Their feet, bare feet is cut up by the rocks, body covered with stings of insects. If you lagged behind, you'd be beaten to death or bayoneted to death. Ernest Gordon said, that the prisoner of war camp was the ultimate laboratory of um, the survival of the fittest. It was every man for himself. We fought for scrapes of food. The officers who had more rations didn't share. And we had no respect for the death, for for death because when people die, they just leave them there. So theft was rampant. We were driven by hatred to survive until something happened. One day, they were walking out in the fields and a Japanese soldier came screaming saying that a tool was missing. He lined them up and asked them to confess but nobody did. So he screamed, all die, all die. He took up the rifle, was about to shoot somebody when another man from the other end stepped forward and said, I took it. So the soldiers went over and started raining blows on him. The man stood at attention. Finally, they raised the rifle and brought it down on his skull. He fell onto the floor with a cracked skull and while he laid motionless on the floor, they were kicking him furiously. Finally, when the assault ended, he was dead. 
That night when they did an inventory of the tools, they realized that there was no tool missing. You see, the Japanese guard made a mistake. And that was when they realized what had happened. The man has, the innocent man had given up his life for them. And because of that, something changed in the camp. They began to respect death. They, they actually buried bodies, had funerals. They looked out for one another. Since theft dropped to almost zero. While there was still hate, there was love. While there was still death, there was life. We had hope because we realized God has not abandoned us. For greater love has no man than this, than when one lay down the lives for a brother. Friends, if we understand the gospel of what Jesus has done for us, something must change. We're not going to live here forever. We have a destiny. We have a purpose. It's not just going through life, going to different seasons, growing old, going through different stages. And we need faith to behold that. As I was thinking about it this week, you know, the sons of Abraham, they are still at war, right? Ishmael, Arabs and Palestines, Isaac, the Jews. How do we discern what is happening? When I look at my own lives or what I've shared recently, right, my father's cancer or previously my struggle with retirement. I mean, if I just live my life by sight, then these are things I'm struggling with. But if I realize that God is in control, this is still my father's world. He has a purpose. Through all these things that I'm wrestling with, well, it's to help me to grow in Christ-likeness and to help others to grow by my witness. And because this is my, still my father's world, I can enjoy the world. I can enjoy the things he has given me, I, but, not, by not for, but not forgetting him. And so the question we ask ourselves today, who are you? You are a child of God. Which child are you? Let us pray. Let's take some time to respond a lot uh, in prayer.